0: going to be doing this evening. If you want to turn somewhere, you can turn to uh, Psalm 16. We'll get to it in a minute. But I want to show you something before we get to that. So I told you we're going to be using the uh, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism as our guide. <laughs> now, if you've never heard of that, or if you have kind of PTSD from a church that had a catechism and you're like, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> let me put you at ease. Catechism is a word that anybody can use, it's okay, we can all use it. Now this one was written in 1646, so it's old, it's a little older than some of us in here. Um, and the reason I like things that are old is because if it's new, it usually ain't true, and if it's true, it ain't new. So all this is, is it was a way to teach people just the big truths of the Bible. You ever heard the word systematic theology? You ever been confused at what that means? Sometimes you hear those things I don't know what that means. Systematic theology, what's a systematic way to categorize things in the Bible? So who is God? Who is Jesus? What is the Trinity? What is the church? How are we saved? Those those kinds of ideas. That's all that the Shorter Catechism is. And it asks it in questions. So there's 107 questions, and we're gonna try to hit a couple of them an, uh, an evening, and they'll, uh, sometimes they group together, other times it's just a standalone. Sometimes it's, one of them is huge, like, when question, I think it's number three, is what is God? We'll probably take that one by itself. That's a big one. Uh, but, but, but to look through these things, and it has a question and a short answer, and the way it's, it was written, it had a bunch of verses to go with each one. Now, we're not going to go through all of those verses because we'd be here forever. Like, for question number one tonight, there's about 15 verses you can read through but you need context and explanation. So I'm gonna kind of condense it down for us. But what I wanted to show you too, is if you wanna get some tools, I tried to get the smallest looking one. Look how unintimidating this is. So fit in your wallet. You can put this in your back pocket. That's all right there, that's it. This one's $1.50, this one's $3 online. They, and it just has all the questions and answers in them. So this one has the question, the answer, and a little bit of a teaching on it. And just a little explanation from a guy who has been dead for several hundred years. Usually you can trust those. This one is thinner, and all it has is the question, and the answer, but it has all the verse references, and they're written out. So take your pick. I'm going to leave them up here, and you can just come and take a picture of them if you want to. Now, if you're big time, look and get this one. Now, this one has all the verses written out. So the question's up here, that little piece, and then that's the verse. So what are we talk, mostly talking about? We're mostly talking Bible. We're not talking man's ideas. We're talking Bible. This one has the, the larger and the shorter catechism and the Confession of Faith. When you hear Confession of Faith, just think doctrinal statement, long doctrinal statement. So that one, this one's thirteen bucks if you want to get that one online. Now, if you're real holy, I'm talking like I'm like Scott Lowry holy. <laughs> if you want to get, then you can get a Bible that has a, the, the catechism in the back. It, it, this is called the Creeds and Confessions. Uh, ESV Bible. Now, this is one the elders got me when I first got here. And this is not. They gave me the goatskin one. Some animal had to give up its life for me to have this Bible. You can get there's a $26 version of it on Amazon if you want to do that. And if you don't want to support pagans at Amazon, you can go to WTSbooks.com and get it for $32. So you know just your conscience leads you on that one. Uh, but it has all it has other confessions and creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Uh, uh, tradi- things that the church has used throughout And they're all in the back and it's it's real handy So if you're looking for a Bible And you're looking to upgrade Well then maybe go go get you a Bible and That's another thing I, uh, If I can make a plug, we're casual this evening Spend good money on a Bible If you want to, spend good money on a Bible I mean think about it, how much did this cost? Two Seven hundred bucks, eight hundred bucks You're still paying for it aren't you And if you crack it, now you're sunk but I mean you can get this. This is the gold skin leather version and it's really nice good paper and it's like $115. That's expensive, but compared to this. And this is the devil's rectangle. And this is the Lord's rectangle. All I'm saying. All I'm saying. Well, our first question this evening is question number one. And the question is, what is the chief end of man? It's a good one to start out with. What is the chief end of man? The answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So the catechism begins at the beginning. This question of why are we here? Why are humans on the earth? Why did I get here? What's the point of me being here? So what's the worldview that we get at schools? That like you guys here, you, you teenagers, you young folks, you hear at schools, how would you get here? Well, it's, you know, it's just material. We're just matter. That's a materialistic worldview that just matter collided and exploded, and then here we are. You can call it a naturalistic worldview or a secular worldview. Like, I don't know why we're here, but we are here. That's not good enough. So what, what we get educated on is a naturalistic worldview, how we got here. But you know that all of those worldviews, whether you call it materialistic, naturalistic, Darwinistic, secular, all of those, they end up in pointlessness, don't they? I mean, or just be honest. What's the purpose of me being here? If I'm just a cosmic accident, that question only leads me to despair and emptiness. That, that, it's just an atheist that believes that their life matters is stealing from the Christian worldview. So if y'all ever heard of Francis Schaeffer before? Francis Schaefer used to talk about uh, a two-story house. And he said that... That, uh, the atheistic worldview says we only live upstairs where ration and reason is, not feeling and emotion. That's where religion is, is down here, feeling and emotion and, and, and meaning and all that kind of stuff. But he said that if an atheist believes their life matters and has purpose, what they're doing is they're going downstairs and they're stealing and going back upstairs and taking from the Christian worldview. And that's just true. So this is a great place for us to start because we don't want to say we just live in a happy inconsistency. My life doesn't actually matter, but I just say that it matters. That's where, that's where unbeliever would have to be. We're not there. An honest worldview insists that intelligent beings, like humans, must come from some greater intelligence, right? That's just consistent. When you see something complicated, you see something intricate, you assume something more complicated and more intricate created it, right? I and mean, that's the big fear of all the robot movies, right? created something, and now it's alive. Ah, now it's smarter than me. (laughs) But it had to come from somewhere, right? If you see artificial intelligence, you know that there had to be organic intelligence from somewhere. So if we see complex life, it's got to come from somewhere. So the only reasonable option for this worldview is to adopt Christianity, a supreme intelligence that comes from the eternal, almighty, triune God of the Bible. (laughs) Hence... The reason that the Shorter Catechism starts with that question. What is chief end of man? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Why do I exist? If there is a purpose for us, then it must be God who defines it. That's why I start there. That, that Everything else is going to flow from that. The whole, the whole catechism, so all of the answers kind of flow from that. But that's really all of our life, right? Like Eventually, if I just got birthed and then thrown into a, an orphanage, and nobody ever talked to me, and it's just us kids, trying. we would eventually start thinking, well, why are we, what, what am I? Why am I here? Who are you? What are you? You look different than me. You're taller. You're shorter. you got long hair. you got You would start thinking through these things if you didn't have anybody telling you anything. So it's good to start here. Now, chief end. That maybe is, sounds a little bit, now, nah, man, what do you mean by chief end? What does that mean? Chief end, don't be tripped up by that. It just means our purpose, ultimate happiness. What are we striving for? The greatest goal, the thing we should be directing all of our efforts towards. That's chief end. That's what that means. And the Bible says that that's God. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we're not going to put them all the verses on the screen during the evening service. By the way, I didn't tell you that. I didn't tell you all that either, Gaylord. Sorry. <laughs> but y'all take a break. You worked hard this morning. Just take it easy. Just bring your Bible and flip around to it or write it down. Revelation 4.11, that's what's saying our chief end must be God. God alone is worthy of our life's goal, our life's focus. Everything else, any other chief end is an idol. See, that's where we start. Any other chief end has to be an idol. It can't be anything else. Now, you ask this, well, Pastor, I mean, can can we have any other goals in life? Is that okay? Or is everything idolatry? for sitting in a circle singing kumbaya and trying to offer praise to god well no of course we can have other goals in life there are other goals that are good in life it just can't become the chief end and goal we have lots of other things that we strive at we work hard at our vocation whether it's paid or not there's plenty of vocations that take up your whole life i'm thinking of mothers don't get paid but that is a worthy lifelong goal and your vocation your your job paying and not paying volunteering and something. The necessities, eating or sleeping. I mean, you know, the church has gone through a series of um, asceticism, where you just try to be as harsh as you can on yourself. I'm not going to sleep. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to enjoy anything. I'm just going to live a miserable life. That's kind of the the first couple of centuries after Jesus's life was what the church kind of got into. I'm going to be a monk. I'm going to go live in a cave, or I'm going to go, or oh, they would even get to live on pedestals. You know, that's where that word comes from, or that concept of being put on a pedestal. It's from a monk. I always live on a higher and higher pedestal, so it's even more and more cold, I guess, or windy. But that's not what we're called to do. Even recreation is enjoying God's creation, enjoying what he's given us, is a a good thing. It's permissible. When we recognize God as the creator of everything, that it all fills into the bigger purpose of glorifying God and enjoying him forever. Because Romans 11.36 says this, For from him, through him, to him are all things; to him be glory forever. If you need me to repeat a verse reference, just holler out or just raise up. as a Romans eleven thirty six. All things from him, through him, and to him. So that's and enjoying those things, we recognize that it fits and moves towards our chief end. We just got to make sure that we don't take it from creator to creature, that our chief end becomes a creature instead of the creator. Now then, here's a the big question: How? Do we glorify God? We're supposed to, if our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy forever, how do we glorify God? Just, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, it's glorify God. Look, if I do it, just show it. What is that? And then you're like, huh. how do I do that? Well, let's break it down. There's two categories. You can glorify God passively or actively. Passively, we're all glorifying God right now. How do you think? Your eyeballs are working, your blood's pumping, and what's, what's keeping your on your head for so long. not me and Tomo? but the rest of y'all. What's keeping your hair on your head? What, it was, well, what's, what's connecting all of those things? I mean, everything is passively glorified. Even the, even the one who hates God, shakes their fist, I hate you. His arm is working. The bones stayed in connection so he could shake his fist. The muscles were contracting the way that they were designed to do. That's glorifying God. That's, that's showing that you are dependent upon God. The lungs contracted and moved in for him to breathe in a way that he could say, I hate you, God. Everybody's passively, and everything is passively glorifying God because it's all pointing to him, right? And then actively, though, that's what we're talking about. It's we design our lives to exalt the God who made us. Think about it like this. Psalm 86, verse 9. All the nations you have made, praying to God, shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name worship that will happen that's happening in the church now it will happen at the end for all eternity when every tribe and tongue and nation is represented in the kingdom so we actively do this now we do it inwardly and externally outwardly so inwardly it's our affections right my heart one of my prayers is lord deepen my affections for you and not like in the romantic society. You could take God out and just put a girl in and be a saint song. The Affections meaning just like the, the, the pining for like, who are you? Like the closeness of, of the relationship of father and child. So those affections, the rest in him, the trust in him, that's inwardly. Then outwardly, we glorify God. We're singing just a minute ago, but also working. You ever been doing a great job at your job and somebody said, man, that's fantastic. Yeah, an opportunity right there, Man, it's, the Lord is good, isn't he? And, and maybe you don't have. Maybe nobody ever appreciates your work, and if you're a mom, I know you're in that camp. I know it. But you still are glorify God with your work and acting, because you're attributing it all to Him. So glorifying God. And secondly, then, how do we enjoy God? Because the chief end is to glorify and enjoy. Glorify. I feel like we get. Enjoy maybe we've heard it or thought about it but it maybe gets distorted a little bit how do we enjoy god how do you enjoy anything think about that did you ever have anything that you wanted to do or you wanted to like or be good at have you ever had one of those acquired tastes that you just were like oh, this is terrible but i'm gonna suck it down until i like it that's what people told me about fresco and i still don't it. <laughs> can't do it, there's better things out there, Mountain Dew chief among them, but uh, we got yes yeah, right here. Okay. Uh, but you know, like those kinds of things, like when you enjoy something, what do you do? You get around it, you, you work your schedule to be where you can be there, right? The, I, I enjoy you, so I'm gonna find my way to put myself in front of you, whether that's a person, an activity, uh, uh, whatever it is, until you can, finally can enjoy it. And sometimes it maybe takes a skill, you ever had like an activity that you weren't good at but it looked like so much fun We wanted to be able to do it for me one of those was a uh, was disc golf and we don't know what about disc golf it's a very sophisticated sport where you take picnic essentially picnic plates turn them upside down and throw them in the woods it's a little more fancy than that but basically what it is and they make uh the discs in different shapes and so they'll fly in different ways but if you can't throw them right they won't go right and there was plenty of times where i was like these are stupid i hate this. I learned how to do it, and then you can watch it move through the trees, and then you feel like a big shot because you're playing a child's game as an adult, <laughs> but you had to work at it so you could enjoy it. The thing is, we're so easily satisfied, aren't we? We're so easily satisfied. I mean, what, what did, uh, I mean, this is an observation I had from youth group. You know that kids, since I've been in ministry, are getting slower and slower to get their driver's license. You know why? they don't care. Why? Because all my friends are right here. And I can FaceTime them. And they don't, they don't care about having a get license. Anybody in here relate to that? No. You were like, I, I got to get a hardship license because I gotta—I have a dog and sometimes I got to get the dog food and you know it's real hard. I can get a license at 14. Some of you were driving at 14. I'm not going to call you. They might be over here, not over here. But we're so easily satisfied with lesser things. Driving is way more fun. Being with your friends is way more fun. But we're so easily satisfied. I mean, it's kind of built into us that we'll take a lesser and lesser thing. True happiness, really true enjoyment is found in resting in God. Psalm 144, 15, and the King James, I it on King James, It says it like this. It says, happy is that people that is in such a case, yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Happy is that people. God is the Lord. If we aren't enjoying God, the problem is us, uh, not him. Not that God's not enjoyable. It's that we haven't put our, put the work of getting in front of him, in the open word, to, to enjoy him, to find a way to enjoy him. Now have you ever thought about that all we'll be doing in heaven is glorifying God and enjoying him forever? That's all heaven is. That's just what it is. So think about heaven as this. You're instantly admitted in the presence of God. Instantly upon death. Admitted into the presence of God. And then you're immediately seeing his face with your eyes. And that's gonna, that's a mind blowing concept. And then you have a full sense of his unfathomable love. You ever felt like his love's not there? Or it's, it's distant? Or it's not present? That's, that's instantly done when you die and you're with him. Full sense of his unfathomable love. And then you're resting perfectly, delightfully in that state forever. It never ends. And And if Jonathan Edwards is correct, it gets better and better as you go. As as eternity goes on, it just keeps growing. So, striving to understand the first question of Westminster's Shorter Catechism is really just aligning ourselves now with what's going to be true then. That's all it is. I'm aligning myself now with what's going to be true then. I'm living like I want to live in heaven, like I'm going to be in heaven. This is how Revelation 21 describes heaven, in verses 3 and 4. And John says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold the dwelling place of God is with man like he's here, he's dwelling with us, behold that he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away <coughs> you we're aligning ourselves with Doing it imperfectly, we're doing it, you know, clumsily. But we're aligning ourselves with that—that that enjoyment, that that connected, that 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 affection with God—and that's not foreign to us. That whole idea. Before you go to a concert, what do you do? You listen to all the songs, right? He's God knows he goes to lots of concerts. He's a pagan. <laughs> Before you go to Disney World, a little less pagan, still on scale though. Before you go to Disney World, what do you do? Watch all the movies, don't you? You, you? you get into it right before you go to college. What do you do? You take a tour of the campus. You go to a football game. Why? You're going to be there in a little bit. Quit worrying about it. And you're excited. You want to go to the thing. You want to. You want to experience. You want to be ready, right? You want to be the only dummy not knowing the lyrics to that song when it comes up. And you want to know the deep cut songs that nobody else knows, so you know that you're better than them. That's what you really want. That's what you need. But that's what we're doing. We're aligning ourselves now inconsistently and simply with what our eternal trajectory is going to be. There's no greater happiness or purpose that any human being can have than glorifying God and enjoying it. No greater purpose that you could ever have. So we as people of God are supposed to be the most content, we're supposed to be the most peaceable, most pleasant people on the planet. Why? Why are we supposed to be the most content, pleasant, peaceful people on the planet? because we're the only people doing what we are made to do. All human beings are made for the same purpose. So we're supposed to be the most content, the most peaceful, the most pleasant. Because we're the only people doing what we're made to do. You can turn to Psalm 16. You're, you might be there already. Verse 5 through 11. It explains like this. this. This is what this person looks like. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives counsel, gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For he will not abandon my soul to Sheol is an Old Testament word just for the nether world, just the place of death. Just, we read that this morning, didn't explain. It. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We see that as the person who's living consistently, one of lighting up with what's going to be then, how it is now. So now, if we do know that, we do have a meaning in life, purpose in life, that's question one. How do we know we're consistent with that meaning or that purpose? That's what question two says. Look at this. Question two says, what rule has God given us to direct us to how we may glorify and enjoy Him? What rule, meaning or what, what, what document, what, what ordering, what directions has He given us to show us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? The answer seems obvious to an unbeliever, but again, if you're growing in this, we need, we need questions that just fill in basics for us. The question the answer is this: the Word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. So if we're going to live consistently with number one, achievement demand is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then we need directions on that. And the writers anticipated that. The guys who wrote this. They know that all created things exist for their creator's glory. Kids, think about this. What if you made a robot, and that robot turned on you? Would that be, you're like, oh no, that's fine. Robots are free to do that. That's what robots do. They're free to just turn on me and do that. Was that what you would want, kids? Would you want a painting that you painted for your mom or your dad, and then it just changes into something else when you turn it to them? Like, wait a minute, I painted a beautiful picture of my mom and dad, and now I have a picture of a dog and a cat. You wouldn't want that, would you? When you create something, whether it's a painting, a cotton gin, Dr. Pepper, or a human being, that thing is subservient to its creator, right? But when the creative thing has a volition and a will, how can that creative being know that it's serving its purpose and glorifying its creator? That's our problem as humans, right? We have a volition and a will, so then how do we know that's what we're created to do? What's well, when we enter the Bible. That's the answer to the question. is, the Word of God. Now, let's ask a big, impossible question. How do we know that this is the Word of God? Well, we can talk about that for hours. I'm going to limit it to two things. Just two things. How do we know that this is the Word of God? We're going to have internal witness and external efficacy. It's a fancy word for it. It does what it's supposed to do. Internal witness. The Bible says it's God's word, and you would expect it to do that, but if it didn't, if you went end-to-end in here and it never said, by the way, what you're holding is the very word of God, or this is how the word of God, then you would, why would you say, yeah, yeah, let's just hold it up, yeah, this is the word of God. Then you could just hold up anything. You could, the directions for your toaster up would be the word of God. It doesn't say it's not the word of God. we got to have something that says in the Bible. That's the first one, internal witness. So it does say, 2 Timothy 3, 16, all scripture is inspired, breathed out, theonoustos, God's air, God's wind. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for proof for correction, training in righteousness. And then another verse, this is a good one, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a big deal. The Bible says inside it, it's the word of God. Now, the Bible also has, internally, a consistency. We don't have time to look at all of these things, but let's just look at a few examples. Genesis 2, 24 is the definition of marriage. We get that, right? you've ever been to a wedding, it's cliche. It's going to be in there. But Jesus says the exact same thing in Matthew 19, 4, and 5. You know how far apart those are. Genesis, the writing of Genesis, not even let alone the moment that happened—that actual God speaking to Adam and Eve. We're talking—if you go back to Adam and Eve, we're talking like eight thousand years. But if you go back from when Moses wrote it to Jesus saying it, is two thousand years. That's internally consistent. And then you have all the prophecies that we get from the Old Testament that come to bear the New Testament, and they just keep coming out, and you can see them being fulfilled as Jesus's life continues on. So here's an advice I'd give you, because every once in a while you run up on something and you're like, oh, oh." how does that line up with this? It says that that God is love, but it says that God hates the wicked. Which is which? Whenever you see an apparent contradiction in the scriptures, my advice is just buckle up. You're about to learn something. If you get in and wrestle with it, that's a good thing. You'll find I'm gonna learn something because it always does a way out. Not a way out of getting in trouble, but a way of explaining why both are true. How they both exist. So that's the internal witness. The Bible says that it's the word of God. It's internally consistent, and that's a massive deal for a book written by over 40 authors over 4,000 years. It's a big deal. So then external efficacy. The Bible changes lives. It's effective. Now, we can get get crazy with this one. You can say, oh, yeah. How many times have you heard somebody say, I changed my life? Essential oils changed my life. (laughs) Juicing my own mangoes changed my life. So many things change our lives, right, these days because we live in an exaggerated life. But if the Bible is the word of God, and if we're taking people who are spiritually dead and making them spiritually alive, shouldn't we see changed lives? Do we see changed lives? We certainly do. Let me give you a couple of examples from the Bible itself. Luke 24 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened to us the scriptures? You know, that's in reference to, we didn't like to read the whole thing, but after Jesus raises from the dead at the end of the book of Luke, he's walking with these two disciples going to a town called Emmaus, and then he's like, what's on?" And he disguised himself so they couldn't tell who he was, and he's like, why are you guys so down? And they're like, how come you don't know? Like, oh man, this horrible stuff happened to our Savior. And then he starts explaining to them the whole Bible and then it says our hearts burned within us when he performed a miracle, when he flew to heaven, what did he do? what? He opened to us the scriptures. The Bible changed their lives. Let's get another life, a non-Jewish life, Acts 8, 35 and 36. Uh, then Philip opened his mouth. I love that detail being added in there. He opened his mouth because you can't do it without Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Who is him? It's the Ethiopian eunuch. So Philip goes to a guy reading the Bible and says, you know what you're reading? He goes, how can I know what I'm reading? I nobody explains it to me. So he explains it to him. He sits there and explains to him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? That's a life changed from God. Explanation of the Scriptures. That guy goes from just being a confused servant to a mega overlord in Ethiopia to saying, "There's water, get me wet." I identified with this Savior. And how? He didn't grow up Jewish. He didn't go to synagogue and put the pieces all together that he's been hearing his whole life. He had the Scriptures explained to him. His life has changed. That's what we see. That's you know, we can go too far with that and make a big deal. We can have false. Changed lives by big, weepy, teary moments that happen down front. Everybody's kneeling on the ground and flying around. But we do expect changed lives. That does happen. And it happens with the Word of God. You all know that I love Spurgeon. As he, he signed my book. You can see it right there. It's a signature. I, I don't know if it's original or not. We'll see. But his testimony is awesome. He's 15 years old. Still not a Christian, but still thinks he kind of is. And he goes to church on an evening service. And he's in England, and it was snowing in the middle of winter, and he couldn't even make it to the church he was trying to get to, so he just stopped short at the Methodist church. No not on the Methodist, but that's just the way it worked out for Spurge. And he goes in, and it's him, a widow, and then a cobbler, a man, by himself, and they're sitting there waiting for the preacher. The preacher never comes. It's night, nice, it's dark, it's snowing, crazy blizzard, so the cobbler just goes, well, I guess I'm a senior member in here. So he got up and preached, and all he knew was Isaiah 45, 22. All, look unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved look unto me and he says he just gets up there and look and he just starts pointing right at Charles saying look young man look and he's uh, and then he just like runs out the door and, and he's in the snow and weed and he comes to Christ at that moment he keeps talking about that passage all the time and it was just a simple verse from an uneducated cobbler that changed that guy's life and then he goes on to be this great world renowned throughout history preacher of God's truth so, we should see changed lives. But the Bible also proves true in human experience. Let me show you a few examples of that Proverbs 15, 1 and 18. We'll see, see if you agree with these being true for all people. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. that seem to be true? In boardrooms, at plumbers' conferences, uh, at military gatherings? I mean, seems to be true, right? A soft word turns away wrath. The next verse, verse eighteen: A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. That seems to be true also. The guy who's not in the hot head keeps everything cool. We see the Bible played out and it works in real life. Now look at this one: Ephesians six one and three: Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Hear me, kids. <laughs> Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, it used to be that when I would go to Walmart, you'd see kids getting spanked all the time. You can't do that anymore. But when I would see it, there would be another kid getting spanked on the aisle next to us, or he'd be being bad, not getting spanked. My mom would grab us and go, did we come here to listen to that little boy scream? I said, no, ma'am. We came here to buy groceries, didn't we? Yes, ma'am. You better not be like that little boy. i will get in trouble for what he did. I didn't do this. So that, Oh, honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you and you may live long. That tends, that tends to work out in real life, does it not? If the person who doesn't have the kid doesn't have strife with their parents tends to go well with them, does it not? I'm looking over here where all the kids are. It goes well with you. We see that work out in real life. But it said that the Bible is the answer to that question. How do we know? What is the rule we've been given so that we know we're glorifying and enjoying God? What is the Bible? The Bible, it said in it, and that answer was the Old and the New Testament. Not the apocrypha. Not time to get into that. That's added books by the Roman Church, by the Eastern Orthodox Church, in between the two testaments. We're talking Genesis to Malachi, those thirty-nine of the Old Testament, and then Matthew to Revelation, the twenty-seven of the New Testament. Let me give you one, two quick summaries of the Old and the New Testament. The Christian worldview, all worldviews have a, have a fourfold structure: creation, fall, redemption, consummation. How did we get here? What went wrong? How do we fix it? How's it going to end up? Old Testament shows us, how did we get here? Genesis 1 and 2. What went wrong? Genesis 3. New Testament, how do we fix it? Jesus comes in, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How's it gonna end up? Acts through Revelation. So we have, we have already, so we have the kingdom of God in us, but not yet the kingdom of God coming down from heaven in Revelation, right? where we have a new heavens and a new earth. So that's the old and the New Testament. Old Testament, think about it as gospel promised. New Testament, think about it as gospel realized. Gospel promised in the old, gospel realized in the new. In the Old Testament, the law is given and broken. Given in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Broken from that point onward. And then the law is fulfilled in Matthew through John by one individual, namely Jesus. Old Testament points to Christ in types and shadows. The New Testament is, is Christ no shadows, no types anymore, we have the substance now, that's the Old and New Testament now why do we look to the Bible to tell us how to glorify and enjoy God because there's nowhere else to look when Jesus prays for his disciples he says sanctify them the truth, your word is truth it's the only source of infallible truth for us and I'll show you that, Prop, Psalms stay where, if you're in 16 just go over to 19 verse 7 through 11 Bible is our only standard for life and godliness. We need more than nature, don't we? You can look around and look at nature and you can see a lot of things and know a lot of things about God, but you can't look at nature and go, ah, I bet God is Trinity. Yeah, that means three in one, they're not parts, they're all fully God. And I'm a sinner, that's true. And one of them, the second one, we'll call him the son, he comes 2,000 years ago and dies on the cross. You can't get that from nature. You can get that there is a God You can get that, I don't want people to sin against me because it hurts me, even though I'm doing it to them. You can get a lot of things from nature, but we need a clear word. That's why we don't follow our hearts, either. It's like the worst advice that Disney's ever given us. Follow your heart. Your heart is terrible. we wicked and deceitful above all things, Jeremiah 17 says. There's no way to measure our hearts against subjective truth, or against objective truth. It's all subjective. It's just feelings. Isaiah 8.20 says this when he's condemning... Uh, the prophets of the land are telling lies. He says, to the teaching and to the testimony, exclamation point! so go look at what they're saying. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn or no light. Go to what they're saying with the word. So here's our conclusion. Humanity has a purpose, and that purpose is detailed for us in the word of God. We have a purpose. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It's true for every person, because every person is created by God non-believers, non-Christians are living contrary to the purpose of humanity unbelievers are living in rebellion to the meaning of life we as Christians though, we want to be striving to grow in our understanding and practice of glorifying and enjoying God forever, that's the lifelong journey called sanctification how do we grow to be more like Christ less like sin that's what we're made to do that's when we're finally in our purpose doing what we were made to do we fit, have you ever Used a tool, the wrong tool for the right job. And like, this doesn't really work. Trying to hammer in a nail with the end of a screwdriver. As a lefty, my junior high friend, who wanted to go to the driving range to play golf, and I didn't know this because I didn't grow, I didn't move in those circles in seventh grade or what golf was. But you gotta have left-handed clubs, or you can't play. So we gets to the driving range. And he's like, hey yeah, here you go." I was like, "How do you swing this thing?" Well, just give it a swing. I was like, "Oh, but these are. Do you have any ones for lefties?" He said, "No." Turn it upside down and start swinging at it. <laughs> like, um, what else am I going to do? I had to turn it upside down and hit it with a skinny edge. Of it. And then somebody put a real left handed club in my hand. And I was like, oh, this is so much easier. You get a much bigger space to hit the ball with, and it's landed the right way. And that's, that's what we are. When we glorify God and enjoy him forever, we're doing what we were made to do. Not close, not almost there. That's what we were made to do. And we have a manual, and it's the scriptures. We're not left alone to figure out how God would have us glorify and enjoy Him. How cruel would it be? Really think about it. How cruel would it be for God to not give us a Bible and say, figure it out. Please me." Maybe it's not even cruel. It would have just been fair because we're so sinful. How gracious is He to give us a Bible and then condense it down to travel size? You can just take this anywhere you want. This is this is, the, this is all he wanted you to know. He didn't give us 63 volumes. He didn't give us a full Encyclopedia Britannica. He condensed it down in his kindness to this. Man, what a blessing. That, I mean, I can know this. And that's how you survive through seminary. Nathan knows it right now he's doing Greek. When you start learning that language and nobody speaks it, you can't go immerse yourself in it, then you go, wait a minute. There's a finite number of words in the New Testament. You can count them all. And I can memorize all those words but what a blessing to have that be what God gave us this is the only infallible rule for life and godliness and we serve a God who made us for himself and when we rebelled against him he gave us what we needed to reconcile with him namely his son the incarnate word and in the Bible the written word a gracious God we serve didn't leave us in the dark he told us who we are why we're here what we're to do and how to do Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for our, our folks being patient. I went longer than 25 minutes, probably. But we're grateful that, that we can spend time together as a church family. Bless our singing as we close out and bring us back together again on the next Lord's Day.